How y'all doing today? Good to see you. I'm glad you're here. If it's your first time here, there's a connect card in your worship folder. Don't be intimidated to fill that thing out, and the rest of you too. It's not an invitation for us to come to your house uninvited. It's just a way for us to talk to each other. You can put it in the offering later in the service, or you can stop by Connecting Point, drop it off there. I encourage you to do that. Before we get into the teaching time this morning, I want to give you a brief update about Cannonball. Those of you who have not been around, Cannonball is a two-year initiative that we've taken on as a church to really jump all in with our lives and our abilities and our time and our finances to accomplish our purpose as a church. So a couple of things that we've already checked off of our goal list for the next two years, we've added Theater 9 for our children's ministry, which is awesome. The teachers and the parents love that. Yeah, it's great stuff. You all have committed your time and your serving. Like we've got the food pantry coming up in July, and I love to see you all signing up for that. And I wanted to let you know something else. We set a goal of getting a ministry center office open. And uh, I want to tell you just a little bit about that because we found a place. We were out there looking for a, uh, a place that would work for offices, a place for us to have classes. And as we were searching, we came across a place that was twice as large as the places we've been looking at before and a third of the cost of the smaller spaces. I love God's math when he does things like that. It's an awesome thing. We, uh, I just went by there this morning to look at the place. We're just adding a few offices inside, but it was mostly finished out before we ever started with it. So we could literally be in there next Monday, but we're waiting on one thing, and that is the fire department to sign off on everything. So this week, if you're a person who prays, would you just pray that, th that God gives us favor with the fire department, that they sign off on everything? We really didn't have to change much, so it's a really simple thing once they get in there that we just need them to go and look and inspect it. So you can pray about that. We want to have an open house in July and invite everybody in to come see his place. And then, of course, as we have classes and things like that, you can be in there for those too. So there you go. Well, we're in our series, One Hit Wonders. I want to talk to you today about changing the world. Changing the world. It's possible, and we can do it. I want to tell you a story, first of all. Around the time that I was graduating from college, somewhere in that spell, I was serving in a church as their youth minister. And one day, as we were all in there working, uh, someone came by our office, and she wanted to talk to our entire staff. She represented an organization. And uh, they were a Christian organization, and they made it their goal to eradicate a certain evil from the world. And I won't tell you what it was just because it doesn't really matter to the story. Just picture this fired-up fanatic representing this organization. They're like, we're going to change the world, and we need your church to sign on and do it. I mean, she was fired up, and she was like, every Christian everywhere needs to take action about this issue. And here's the thing. I don't remember exactly when this conversation took place other than it was probably around the time I was graduating from college. And I only tell you that because I want you to know who I was at that time. I was that starry-eyed, idealistic college kid who really believed, yes, we can change the world right now, today, all of us together. And so she should have been preaching to the choir with me. As she talked about her topic, it was one that I actually agreed with her. Yeah, the world would be a better place if we eliminated this. But as she talked, I found myself more and more turned off to the point where finally as she continued to talk and, and try to persuade us, I just thought, please stop talking. <laughs> I just couldn't wait for her to leave. And here's what it was about. I agreed with her topic. I agreed with her organization. There was no way I wanted to participate with them, though. Here's the, I was in total agreement with them, but I was in total disagreement with their approach to how they were going to eradicate this from the world. I couldn't have disagreed with them more. As she ranted on and on, I just thought, you know what? The way to solve this is not to get into politics. The way to solve this is not to argue with people or to show graphic commercials or to boycott organizations or to pick it. That's... First of all, I just thought, this is ineffective. It's not going to persuade anybody. Beyond that, I was just also thinking, I don't see Jesus doing any of the things that you're asking our church to go out and do. I just didn't really think it was the way to change the world. 
Now, here I am today. I'm standing before you. I won't tell you how long, but I'm a long way past being an idealistic college student, right? I still think that we can change the world, but I think that we need to be smart about how we do it. I believe that as I look at the world, there are many things that we can address and do something about. There are some things in the world that need to change, and maybe you agree with me. Sometimes I watch the news, and I'm like, God, your kingdom needs to come now because I don't want to live in a world where millions of women and children are sold into sex slavery every year. I mean, you look at that, and there's human sex trafficking is the most common form of slavery in the world today. That needs to stop. According to the FBI, this is not just a rest-of-the-world issue either. According to them, a recent study has shown that there are over 300,000 American youths who are at risk of being victimized by commercial sexual exploitation. That needs to stop, and it can. Now, there are other kinds of slavery in the world today, and you know that. According to the National Institute of Drug Abuse, the abuse of tobacco and alcohol and illegal drugs costs our nation over $600 billion a year in terms of lost wages due to lost productivity and to crime and to health care. What if we could get ahead of that and change that? Let's even go a step further. What if abortion laws in the United States were unnecessary simply because no one sought to have one? No moms being harmed by this. No unborn children being harmed. Just unnecessary. How about this? How many Americans out there still today hold racist and prejudicial views and practice discrimination? Would one of you call Paula Dean and tell her it's 2013 and we don't use the N-word? Would somebody do that? If you don't know what I'm talking about, you can Google it later. How many men today still disrespectfully treat women as inferior and maybe even worse with outright abuse? That's got to stop, right? How do we change that? You know, and I'll tell you this too, just from the bottom of my heart, I don't understand how we can live in a world today where millions of Americans still root for the Chicago Cubs. <laughs> Kingdom come, your will be done, Lord. Gosh, I love the headline that came out of Chicago this year. It was uh, Chicago Cub fans give up hope for Lent. That's <laughs> good, good call there. I don't even know what to do with all you who think Dr. Pepper tastes good. We need a change in the world. Seriously, though, Christians who want to see the world change and be a, become a better place, we want to see God's will done on earth as in, his head in heaven, right? We want God's will to be done here because it will make for a, the world that we were created to live in. There are things that are wrong in the world that, that ought to be fixed, and somebody ought to do something about it. So I really think that Jesus wants to bring change into the world. It's not like we're just going to accept the status quo. But how do we go about taking on these issues? What do we do with it? How do we make things change in a way that's appropriate and Christ-honoring and, and really actually makes a difference? Well, I want to talk about the extremes. On one extreme, you have those people like the person who came by our office who, who are not just advocates, but they're activists in the most extreme way. And they're just so in your face and they're argumentative and they're just, in some ways, just rude. And you've got those people who want to picket abortion clinics, they want to boycott companies, they want to get on TV and argue loudly about same-sex marriage, and they want to just get into politics to try to legislate the way the country should go. And so you got that extreme of the advocate or the activist. The problem to me, at least, and maybe you disagree, and that's okay, you can talk to me, but the extreme version of that, I'm not talking about persuasive talking or standing up for your beliefs or anything. I'm talking about extreme in your face. The problem with that is I think it as much repels the people we're trying to reach as anything. You don't convince anybody by arguing with them. You change a, man's will, change a man's mind against his will, he'll be of the same mind still. I just don't think it works. 
we're turning away the people who we're trying to bring to God. Unfortunately, I think a lot of people that we're trying to reach out to, and I say we as a whole of Christians, not necessarily we here in this room, I think we're probably not dangerous, in danger of doing this. But the people who are not Christians, they look at Christians in general and they see only the things that they think we're against. They don't see the things we're for. They don't feel the love. They don't feel the care and the concern. They don't realize that we all have been there before. They don't get that from us. They don't see the food pantries and the clean water initiatives and the, the programs for unwed moms and the adoption programs. They just they feel judged. They feel like we've put ourselves on a moral high ground and we're looking down on them and they feel condemned. And so I don't think that's really working to change the world. We're pushing people away. Now, from here, the other extreme that many Christians take is to simply just say, yeah, this is just the way it's going to be, just to do nothing. I think about a guy I talked to once. He told me, and I'm, I'm pretty much quoting him word for word. I'm not exaggerating. He said, I'm a Christian. My family are Christians. I don't care about the rest of the world. They can just burn. I don't care because I'm fine. I'm not saying that that's my view. That's just a guy said that to me. That is a view, just to be apathetic and say it's just going to be what it is, so as long as I'm okay, I'm okay. One step shy of that is what has been, the term that's been coined is slacktivism. You know what slacktivism is? We've got a definition up on the screen. Basically, it's hitting like on Facebook and thinking you've changed the world totally, just because I, yeah, that did it, that right there. It makes you feel good, but it didn't really accomplish anything. You, you remember this guy? Remember Joseph Coney? You remember the Coney 2012 campaign? Now, please, if you were involved in that, I'm not deriding this. I'm not deriding your involvement or denigrating in any way. Joseph Coney, uh, in this campaign, was a well-intentioned effort to bring him to justice. He is a leader of what he calls the Lord's Resistance Army in Africa. He's personally responsible for massacres, mass rapes, raising a legion of child soldiers. He is truly a bad guy. If there ever was one, Joseph Coney was. Now, this guy has evaded capture for nearly three decades now. So the whole point of the Coney campaign, if you're not familiar with it, was to make this guy so famous, to get his picture out there and his story out there so everywhere, and to saturate every part of the world with this so that he could not go anywhere and hide. That he was so famous that wherever he went, there would be somebody who would recognize him and call the authorities, and he would be captured. Well, that was last year, and I got to think about it. Whatever happened with the Coney 2012 campaign? We caught him, right? I read a, a, this week, I just read a follow-up article about this. No, he's still out there. He's maybe famous, but nobody's caught him. Now, the organization that spearheaded this has brought in an additional $20 million, so there's that. I don't want to be cynical. I really do think there's a way to change the world, but I'm not sure that things like this are the way we do it. I think there's a way that God has been effectively employing for 2,000 years or more now and it really is having a lasting impact in the world. It's God's way to change the world. It works. In a nutshell, here it is. If you're a person who's taking notes today, you can write this down. God changes the world one person at a time. It's a key thought for today if you're writing this down. God changes the world one person at a time. And how he does that is he changes the world one person at a time through spiritual friendships. And how that works out is a person, you and I, we are personally transformed by our relationship and friendship with God. Okay. I come into a relationship with my creator. I am reconciled to him. I am restored in my relationship with him. And then he starts changing me to the point where as I am transformed, God uses me to transform the people around me. So we are all restored and our world is made right as we're all personally transformed by God. 
And then we bring our transformed and our influencing selves into all of our friendships and all of the circles that we uh, live and work and go to school in and all of that. So God transforms the world one person at a time. First, he transforms you and me, and we change, and then we help change the people around us. I love how the Bible says this in Romans 12 too. It says, you know, don't copy the behavior and the customs of this world, but let God transform you into a new person by changing the way you think. Then you'll learn to know God's will for you, his will that is good and pleasing and perfect. That's how God changes the world. He changes me, changes the way I think. He makes me friends with him, then he changes the people around me. Don't ever underestimate the power of a transformed individual's life to influence people around you. You know, last week, if you were here, we talked about Third John. We talked about the power of imitation, how we learn by imitating the examples of others around us. That's what God does. He, first of all, teaches us how to live his good and pleasing and perfect will, the best way to live life. And then he says, now go out there and live it among the people and just let that draw people to me, God says. And we transform the world one person at a time as my life has changed, as your life has changed. And I know this works because of a little book in the Bible that we're going to look at today. If you've got a Bible, you can turn there to Philemon. It's one of our one-hit wonders. It's just a simple one-chapter book. It's actually a letter that was written from one person to another. It's sandwiched between Titus and, and Hebrews, if you're looking for it. It's toward the end of the Bible. What you have here is a short personal letter. It's a piece of correspondence from one Christian to another, from one Christian man to another, and the author is really challenging his friend. He's really pushing the boundaries of their friendship, but he's calling on him to radically change the way he thinks about the world and the way that he lives, one Christian man to another. And he writes some pretty bold things here. But here's the thing. This little letter that's in your Bible, the reason it's in the Bible is because it changed the world. It literally did. This six-paragraph piece of correspondence became a tipping point, and in part because of what was written here from one Christian man to another, it eventually rippled out to the point where slavery ended in the Roman Empire. That's the impact this one letter, one Christian man writing to another Christian man had. How did that happen? Well, before we actually get into what the letter says, let's get a little background here about who it was that wrote it and what was going on. The author of the letter is the Apostle Paul. He wrote a good deal of the New Testament. He wrote several letters to churches and individuals that we have in the Bible. Paul, at this point, is a significant leader in the church. He's also an older man. As he writes this letter, he's under house arrest in the city of Rome. He's awaiting a hearing before the Roman emperor. But he, as being under house arrest, he was able to have visitors. He was able to correspond with people. He did all the freedoms of a Roman citizen until he had his hearing. And so he's writing this letter from Rome to a good friend named Philemon. That's why it's called Philemon. And Philemon lives in a little town called Colossae, which is over in Turkey, uh, Asia Minor. So just imagine Paul, 1,500 miles away, writing this letter to his friend Philemon. Now Philemon is a wealthy man. And we don't know where the Apostle Paul and Philemon met, but we do know this. Paul is the one who led him to Christ. Philemon is a Christian because of Paul. So somewhere along the way, they met. Uh, Philemon's a Christian now. He's wealthy enough that the entire church of Colossae meets in his house, so he's got a large home. He and his wife host the church every week. Their son is probably a pastor, maybe even a pastor in this church. So this picture is wealthy Christian man who Paul's writing to. Here's where the story gets interesting. Paul wrote this letter he sent it from Rome by way of a runaway slave and thief named Onesimus. Paul wrote the letter, Onesimus, take this to Colossae, take it to Philemon, and give it to him. 
how would a runaway slave in Rome know how to get 1,500 miles to Colossae? Well, that was this slave's hometown. Paul is sending him back to the place he ran away from. Okay, but let's take this a step further, and it gets even more interesting. Okay, so Onesimus gets to Colossae. How does he find Philemon when he gets there? Philemon was his master. Philemon is the one that he stole from and ran away from when he went to Rome. So just picture this. Months or years before, Onesimus has had enough. He runs away from this life of slavery. He runs away to Rome with some stuff that he's stolen from the house. He's in Rome, and, and who knows how, but in some way he met the Apostle Paul there in Rome. Their paths crossed. At some point through their conversations as Paul was under house arrest, Philemon, I'm sorry, Onesimus became a Christian. Paul led him to Christ. Now here's the thing. At some point, Onesimus must have confessed to Paul what he'd done. Like, yeah, I stole from my master. I ran away. Paul said, well, who was it? Was this guy named Philemon? Is this coincidence or is this providence? But Paul's like, I know that guy. He's my friend. I don't know who brought it up, if it was first Onesimus or if it was Paul, but they came to the conclusion that Onesimus should go back to his master that he ran away from and make things right. And I could just picture Paul saying, come on, Onesimus, I know Philemon, he's a good guy. Let me write a letter, and you take the letter. He's a good guy. I'm sure we can get this worked out. You need to face the music, but I think it's going to work out okay. So Paul takes a piece of parchment, he takes a pen, he scratches this letter, says, Onesimus, now go. Onesimus takes the journey with this letter in hand. And now, with that in mind, I want to read you just part of Philemon's letter from the Apostle Paul. And I'm going to read it from the message paraphrase because I really think it gives that punch of personal correspondence. It'll be up on the screen. You can follow along. I'm not going to read the whole thing. I'm just going to read starting in verse 8. So here's what Paul wrote to Philemon. He said, Philemon, I have a favor to ask of you. As Christ's ambassador and now as a prisoner for him, I wouldn't hesitate to command this if I thought it was necessary, but I'd rather make it a personal request. While here in jail, I fathered a child, so to speak, and here he is, hand-carrying this letter, Onesimus. Now, he was useless to you before. Now, I want to stop here for just a second. Paul is making a little joke at Onesimus' expense. The name Onesimus means useful. So Paul's making a little joke about his name. So he says, Onesimus was useless to you before. Now he's useful to both of us. I'm sending him back to you, but it feels like I'm cutting my right arm off in doing so. I wanted in the worst way to keep him here as your stand-in to help out while I'm in jail for the message, but I didn't want to do anything behind your back, make you do a good deed that you hadn't willingly agreed to. I don't know, maybe it's all for the best that you lost him for a while. You're getting him back for good now, and no mere slave this time, but a true Christian brother. That's what he was to me. He'll be even more than that to you. So if you consider me still a comrade in arms, welcome him back as you would me. If he damaged anything or owes you anything, chalk it up to my account. This is my personal signature, Paul. I stand behind it. Now, I don't need to remind you, do I, that you owe your very life to me? Come on, do me this big favor, friend. You'll be doing it for Christ, but it will also do my heart good. I know you well enough to know you will. You'll probably go far beyond what I've written. I'm going to leave off there with what Paul wrote. With these simple words, this short letter, Paul changed the world. Because what we know is that Onesimus did carry that letter back to Philemon. Philemon read the letter with his runaway slave in front of him. Philemon let his slave go. He released him from slavery. Now, how did that happen? I want you to notice what Paul did not say in this letter, okay? Paul did not 
write to his friend Philemon and say, come on, dude. The institution of slavery is obviously an abhorrent evil in the world. It must be abolished immediately, and anyone from here forward who practices slavery will go to hell immediately. <laughs> he didn't say that to his friend. He didn't anywhere say, slave owners, you should let your slaves go. Nowhere in the New Testament do we find any good Christians commanded to boycott businesses that were run with slave labor. There's nowhere in the New Testament where we're told to picket places like that. In fact, we have no record of the Apostle Paul or Jesus, or any of the other apostles telling slaves, you should rise up and rebel, you should run away. To the contrary, you don't find any of that. So it kind of brings up a question to me, maybe you've thought of this too, does, does the apostle Paul tacitly or explicitly endorse slavery? Is he like, this is okay? You know, should we renounce his apostleship? Should we take all of his books out of the Bible? Because he's like saying slavery is okay? I don't think Paul's saying anything of the sort. Just hang with me for a second. Put that thought on hold. First of all, let's talk a little bit about what slavery was actually like in the Roman Empire. For all of us in America, we have an idea and an image of slavery that centers around what happened here in the colonies and in the Caribbean in the 17th through the 19th centuries. And that was bad. It really was. I'm not, and slavery was different in the Roman Empire. It was not like what it was here in America. I'm not saying it was good. Slavery is never right, but it wasn't necessarily like what we had here. Slavery in the Roman Empire was less like roots and more like downtown Abbey. Just not a different, not a same scenario at all. See, there were only three ways that you became a slave in the Roman Empire. You were either captured in war, or you got yourself into enormous debt, and you sold yourself into indentured servitude to pay off your debt, or three, you were a child who was born while your parents were slaves. That's it. That's how you became a slave. American slavery was based on race. American slavery was for a lifetime and it was based on kidnapping. They were two entirely different programs. Roman slaves were actually paid at the same pay scale as a free man, paid exactly the same thing. A Roman slave was usually a slave only for about 10 years and they managed to pay off their debt and they were released. A slave could be a professional. You could be a doctor or an accountant or an attorney and be a slave. A slave could own slaves of their own. So just in your mind, just picture it's an entirely different situation first of all. Still, it's not a good thing, no matter what. It's not good, and it's not appropriate, it's not right for one human to own another human being. So it wasn't all Dixieland in Rome either. A slave did not have any rights. The master could kill him at any time for things like, I don't know, running away. So you've got this situation going on. It wasn't the plantations of the South, but it's still not good. And Paul did not ignore that. He actually dealt with it in a way that was so subtle, so tactful, so graceful, and lighthearted, yet so effective that Philemon set Onesimus free when he got back. And the ripples continued on from there. Countless Christians followed Philemon's example. They followed Paul's teaching in Philemon to where it came to the point where slavery just disappeared from the Roman Empire. How did that happen? Is there anything that we can imitate here? Again, I will remind you, God changes the world one person at a time. As one person is transformed and they learn to live their life according to God's will and they transform the people around them, the world changes. Is there anything in Paul's approach that you and I can imitate if we want to change the world around us? Like, I just want to change myself or I want to influence my friends to not do what they're doing or I want to change the way things are in the world and I want evil to disappear. Is there anything we can do? Absolutely. I've read a great book recently. It's called Switch. Uh, making... Uh, how to change things when change is hard. 
And the authors are a couple of guys, their brothers, Chip and Dan Heath. And they're saying anytime you want to change anything, if you want to change yourself, if you want to influence somebody else, the first thing you need to do is just to picture that person, even yourself, as a rider on an elephant walking down a path. If you want to influence a friend or yourself, just picture this. You got it? The rider on the elephant is your intellect, or that person you're wanting to persuade, it's their intellect. And so if you want to change them, the first thing you have to do is to speak to their intellect. You have to educate them. You have to give them some information. You have to motivate them a little bit. Inform the intellect. You need to change. But then you have to motivate the elephant. And that, in a person, is your emotions and your heart. And so if you're trying to change somebody, you have to engage their heart and their emotions. And the last thing, that elephant is walking down a path, not in this picture, but just picture the elephant walking down a path. That's your environment. So if you're going to change somebody, even yourself, you talk to the, heart, the head, the heart, and the environment. Let me put this into real practical terms. Let's say you want to lose weight. You want to lose 10, 20, whatever. Just pick a number. You want to lose some weight, right? Have any of you ever successfully lost weight just by saying, I need to lose weight and be healthier? It worked, right? All you need to do is have somebody tell you, you need to lose a little weight because you're speaking to the head. So done, right? It never worked that way for me anyway. Because even though my head says, I need to stop eating now and I need to go running, the elephant in me says, no, we're going to eat a whole box of Thin Mints right now. Now, do we have the picture of the elephant and the rider up again? Can that 150-pound rider really tell a 15,000-pound elephant where it's going to go if the elephant really wants to go somewhere else? Just because you say up here, I'm not going to eat the Thin Mints, the elephant says, oh, yes, we are, and the elephant gets what the elephant wants. So you have to speak to someone's heart, even your own. And then think about the pathway. Because it's not enough just to educate somebody. How many times have you known the right thing to do and you still haven't done it? So you can't just speak to the head. You can't even just motivate somebody. You have to also shape the path. Maybe you speak to the head by saying, I'm going to get healthier because I want to see my grandkids, and that's the heart. I, I envision seeing my grandkids and my great-grandkids because I'm healthy enough to live that long. But then you shape the path, and you ask your wife to hide the Oreos and the Thin Mints so you can't find them. And so it's not even a temptation because they're not there. That's how you change somebody. You change the head, the heart, and the environment. Now let's take this back. Paul never read Switch. It hadn't been written, you know, 2,000 years ago. But Paul did this perfectly with Philemon. Paul wants to influence his friend. So he first of all spoke to Philemon's head, and he said this, Onesimus is now better than a slave to you. He's your brother in Christ. He's educating him. He's giving Philemon a little different filter to look at Onesimus through. He's not just a slave anymore. He's your brother in Christ. Then Paul spoke to Philemon's heart. Okay? He said, I appeal to you on the basis of love for my son, Onesimus. He's, he's bypassed his head at that point. He's gone straight to his heart. This is my son. Can you really have my son as your slave? Then the coup de grace, he shapes the environment. This is so smart. Paul shaped the environment. How did he do that? He sent Onesimus back from Rome to Philemon in Colossae. So smart. Think about this. So Philemon doesn't have to deal with Onesimus in the abstract. He's standing right in front of him. You can't call him brother on Sunday and slave on Monday. How can you go to church with your slave and at church on Sunday, he's my brother, and yet realize that I too was a slave to sin. He was a slave to sin. We are now both slaves to Christ as they worship together, as they broke communion together and said, we are the body of Christ. 
that had to be running through Philemon's head. How can I call him my slave? We are both servants of the Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Smart. I think that right there is why Philemon let Onesimus go and released him as a slave. It just was not compatible anymore. He, he changed. He was transformed. This is how you change the world. You change somebody. You change their heart. You change their mind. And it changes the world. I love what Paul wrote to some friends of his in, in Galatia. He wrote in Galatians 3.26. He said, All of you are God's children because of your faith in Christ Jesus. And when you were baptized, it's as though you put Christ on in the same way that you put on new clothes. Your faith in Christ Jesus is what makes each of you equal with each other, whether you're a Jew or a Greek, a slave or a free person, a man or a woman. So I'm telling you, the world has transformed, the world has changed as we change. First of all, I've got to get right with God. There are things in my life that have to go away. Before I ever address anyone else's problems, I better be dealing with my own. How can I talk to you about the speck of sawdust in your eye when I've got a log in my own eye? First, Jesus says, deal with the log in your eye, then you're free to help other people. I need to, first of all, be transformed by God. Then I bring my transformed self into my relationships, and the world starts changing. That's how you do it. So I look at this, and I find it very interesting. Paul's strategy for eliminating slavery in the Roman world was not to fight the Roman Empire. It was simply to grow the church. You grow the church, and it will awesomely change because you've got a whole bunch of people who realize, hey, this is my brother. That's how you change anything in the world. You know what's better than having a Christian nation? Follow me here. I think Christian nation's fine, but you know what's better? How about a nation full of Christians? Wouldn't that be preferable? How about a nation full of people who not only know the word of God, but respect the word of God and live the word of God out in their lives every day? A lot of our problems would just go away if we just did that, right? So I think our goal ought to be to be out there, to be authentic witnesses, to just live out our faith in a very real way rather than to be judges who point our finger in people's faces. You know, I think the best way to change the world is not through protests. Maybe there's a place for that sometimes, but really? Snarky comments on Facebook? Is, is that tweet you're about to send denigrating something you saw? Is that really going to change anybody's mind? Or is maybe the best way to be like Jesus, to be gracious and kind? Don't ever compromise your convictions and your morals. You live a holy life, but you live with such grace that the people around you can't help but be drawn to you. That's how you change the world. As we close this out, I just want to ask you, if the starting point is personally being transformed by God, have you been changed by God? I mean, what's your story? Is there a, like, here's how I was, but then I met Jesus and my whole life changed? Has that that moment in time ever happened where you said yes to Jesus? I'm telling you, all of us, no matter who you are, like to have our hands at 10 and 2 on the steering wheel of our lives. That's the problem. We insist on being in the driver's seat, and God says, look where it took you. When you insist on having your way, it does not lead to the best life possible. How about taking your hands off the wheel, committing to the leadership of another person? That's what you do when you become a Christian. You submit to the leadership of Jesus. He becomes your leader, but he also forgives your sins, starts a whole new life. And the first step you take when you follow Jesus is you obey him. He said to be immersed in water, so you do it, because my, my leader said to. So if you've never had that transforming moment where you've connected with the creator of the universe... Would you come talk to me after service today? I would love to help you initiate that process, to to see the world change just as simply God changes you. Would you stand with me? And and I want to pray with you, and then as we come into our communion time, please be thinking about what it is maybe that God wants to change in you today. Would you stand? Father, I thank you that you are even now working among us.
I pray that this world would not be the same even a year from now because you're working through us and we're working in our community and in our world. I truly believe, Father, that you want to change the the world through your love. And so help us to, first of all, receive your love and then to show your love to people around us in very tangible, real ways. Help us not to be judgmental, but to remember who we were before you called us. Help us to be people of grace. I thank you that you're changing us day by day. Help us to be patient and accept each other as we change. And I pray in Jesus' name, amen.